Welcome back to 64, a chess podcast. I am David. I'm coming at you live from New York for the final time. Um, actually, if you're listening to this, uh, I'm probably in Copenhagen if the year is 2021 or 2022. Um, so yeah, and uh, basically coming at you live from, from New York. And I'm very, very, very pleased to welcome uh, the sensei of chess himself, International Master Kosti Kovutsky from the Chess Dojo. How's it going? I'm good, man. Thanks for, thanks for having me here. This is great. So um, you are an international master. Uh, you have uh, extensive career as a streamer. I remember seeing your streams like years ago on Lee Chess um, when I just got started. And now you're, you're, you're with the Chess Dojo, which is, you can correct me if I'm wrong, it's you, Grandmaster Jesse Cry, and international master David Pruis. Uh, and a whole host of other colorful characters um, who are studying chess together and um, learning and growing the game together. So it's a lot of fun. Uh, you can check out Chess Dojo on YouTube and on Twitch and on Twitter. Um, and uh, just before we get into the, the meat and bones of the podcast, I uh, just want to thank Aim Chess once again for sponsoring this podcast. You can use code David30 to get 30% off of your first month of Aim Chess. And we also have a Patreon, so um, if you want to ask questions to the guests and whatnot, uh, check out the Patreon. It's 64 Podcasts on Patreon, and uh, no one signed up yet, um, but it is up and live, so um, I'll just leave that there. And uh, with that being said, let's get right into it. Um, so, Kostya, uh, first thing that we talked about is uh, when we were you know, DMing about the podcast is that you have a chessboard course coming up, and I That's didn't right. know anything about this, and you know, chessboard courses are very high quality they're being you know pumped out like uh you know like a factory and they're all so good so why don't you tell us a little bit about the course that you're working on yeah basically i um i've I've had this idea for a course for a while but they recently did this like create your own course contest that i wanted to that was like the final motivation to like okay just go in and do it uh basically my course is all about uh in-game studies I don't know if you're familiar, but endgame studies are these like kind of composed endgame problems that virtually like every coach uh, likes endgame studies and is a fan of them. But generally, they're only recommended to pretty advanced players. Um, the reason for that, in my opinion, the reason I don't recommend them to lower rated players, let's say like below 2000, is because generally uh, the puzzles themselves are very hard. And they usually come in these like collections where there's not a lot of instruction. It's just like a book of puzzles. And then you're supposed to just kind of sit and like calculate for 20 minutes and then try to figure it out. And a lot of times the solution is just really difficult. And sometimes the problems, you know, they, they have like varying difficulty. So one problem will be kind of easier. And I would say like an average 1600 rated player can solve it. The next one will be like this 20 move combination that's just like even difficult for, for grandmasters. So basically I felt like even though endgame studies are really, really instructive and they teach you like how to coordinate your pieces in the end game, they show a lot of like nice tactical resources, they boost like your imagination and creative thinking. I, I couldn't really find like a decent uh, guide for, for players that are let's say under 2000 as to like how to actually solve endgame studies and one that like explains like the typical ideas that you would encounter in endgame studies. So this course on chessboard is me just trying to break down a lot of like the typical tactical themes in endgame studies and also some of like let's say the thinking techniques. So for example, 
uh, in studies, there's often a lot of uh, themes that uh, we would call uh, attraction or deflection that are very common. There's also a lot of like decoy ideas. There's this theme called interference that's very common in studies. And I think these are really instructive themes. They come up a lot in, in, in chess uh, just generally. Um, there's also lots of themes of like Zugzwang and domination. So I basically just tried to break it down theme by theme, showing like really simple problems at first and then slowly, gradually making them harder to kind of give people like a sense of the, let's say the fundamentals and like uh, offer people a lot of like building blocks so that once they complete the course, they can actually go and get one of these like difficult study books and not feel like they're, they're totally lost. Um, so this is kind of my... I guess my gift <laughs> to the chess world because I have a lot of students and like basically I have to I have to like curate puzzles for them because if I just give them a book like uh, Kasparian's uh, Domination and 2545 Studies like really popular book some of those puzzles in there are just like near impossible and so you're like banging your head against the wall so I have to like carefully choose like the easiest ones and like handpick them for students so I'd, I'd rather just make this course and now people can just kind of go through it and build up their their tactical and their their end game thinking that way. So for this course, are you going to be picking like famous studies or your own positions like for that you've made or is it mm. kind of a mix? Yeah, I, I use a lot of well-known studies that I would say are quite solvable because not every study is difficult. There are some that are 1,200, 1,600 um, uh, level. Um, so I handpicked a lot that I thought are, are quite solvable. And then I, um, let's say... Um, shorten a lot of studies that maybe the full solution is like 12 moves deep, but the last three moves are like just an interesting puzzle in, the, in themselves. So I just take the last three moves of a study and then just put that just to show like the, uh, the idea. And one cool thing at the end of the course that I really liked is that I have um, like a collection of studies for like 1200 uh, rated player, 1400 rated player, 1600, just kind of slowly and gradually getting harder. You know, when, when people, most people think about like a chessable course, they think um, openings because they have these lifetime right. repertoires. Um, I mean, I actually, I bought a book on Rook Endgames um, on chessable like last year. Uh, and I'm, I, you know, you buy endgame books and you never use them because you just are, you know, who wants to study endgames when you could study, you know, Anish Giri, yeah. Nidorf. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but if study the endgame, you know, that's what everyone says. Um, anyway, um, I guess like most people think about openings when they think about chessable. So what makes chessable like so useful for, you know, other, other aspects of, of like studying chess or really like, yeah. I guess how I could ask this is like, why wouldn't you just maybe make like a, uh, like some sort of website, like kind of like Gotham has like Gotham chess has like his eight courses or whatever, where it's on his own video or whatnot. So like, is it just the ease of access or are there things on chessable that like you really like for this kind of stuff? Yeah, basically what I like about Chessable is the, the format. I think the move trainer tech is really cool. Uh, and like you said, actually, it's not just for openings. In fact, I would say that like the opening courses is one of the last reasons <laughs> to use Chessable. Like as a coach, I rarely tell people to like go and like practice lines, you know, like move by move, um, which I think was maybe the original kind of use for, for chessable to like practice your openings. And I think that might be useful, but yeah, I would say uh, it, it seems like most people are trying to like memorize the full like lifetime repertoire, which to me seems um, just astronomically difficult. Whereas like a more useful purpose when it comes to openings is to just try to remember like a few key ideas, a few like 
key positions that you can get to and then slowly kind of build your knowledge around that. Um, but what I do like Chessable for is um, actually, I feel like studying end games is very practical on Chessable because for me, what I feel like when it comes to end games, most people just aren't like practicing them enough, like literally moving the pieces with their own hand. I think people usually like watch a video on end games and then the concept makes sense to them and then they think they get it. But then when it comes to like the actual chessboard and the clock is ticking and they have to like, you know, make the moves that they've learned already, it's like uh, people often just uh, lose their minds, right? They, they forget what they've learned or that it looks kind of similar. And so they make a move that they think is right without, they don't really understand what's going on. So I've seen it so many times when a player messes up like really typical like Lucina position, Philidor position, you know, really basic king and pawn end games. And then afterwards, they always say the same thing. They're like, oh, I know this end game. I've studied this end game. But clearly they've they never really practiced it. They never really drilled it. So chessable, I think, is great for actually drilling end games. Um, I was working on the 100 end games you must know book for a while because there's a lot of like very fundamental positions that I've never like really, really practiced. And I, I can just feel like if I get it in a game, I would probably mess it up just like not having a feel for it. Um, I also think Chessable was great because like, I mean, you could put any book on Chessable, like I did the Woodpecker method on there a couple of years ago. And um, it's no different than like solving tactics from a book, except of course, like, you know, the position is set up for you. And I like that they they gamified it because it just like means you're more likely to actually do the thing, right? You can You can buy a book, but then you have to motivate yourself to work through it. And you have to kind of keep track yourself if that's something you want to do. Whereas Chessable, they just keep track for you. They keep track of the puzzles you get wrong. Um, and, you know, they give you these little like bonuses, these little stickers. It's kind of for kids, but I like, I think adults enjoy that stuff too. So for me, it's like whatever gets you to do the work is a good way to do it. Yeah, that's great advice. I mean, so, so you know, obviously um, many of us have been following your, uh, your, uh, your quest to, you know, push for the Grandmaster title recently. You know, you played at the National Open and you had your, your, I really hope this beeping isn't going to be in the. <laughs> I can hear it, but yeah. it's fine. It's free podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's a free podcast. Yeah. Um, okay. I'll start from again. So, so, you know, people who are, who have been following your, um, you know, your, your coaching on, on YouTube and, you know, your YouTube videos uh, and your streams know that you've been uh, pushing for the Grandmaster title again. I remember a couple months ago you played in the National Open. And you gave like a summary of each of your games, uh, and that was very instructive for me as someone who's also like an improving player. Um, so, uh, first of all, I'm wondering like, do you use Chessable like for your own study, um, or is it kind of a mix? But then, um, something that's hard for me on Chessable personally is like, f for example, I got this Anishgiri Dragon course, which is more positional than your typical dragon, um, more exchanges, you know, playing more for structure and like long-term ideas. Um, but it's interesting, like, it, it, I, it was so funny because I got, like, 100 variations in, felt really good, I felt I was making progress. Then I had some, like, research stuff I had to do, and I come back three days later, and it has, like, you know, 600 moves you have to, so that's, like, an hour you got to sit. So, like, I, I guess, like, how do you kind of overcome that, like, oh, I have to memorize all this, I have to, like, check all these lines again sort of feeling when you're studying? Yeah, no, I think it's a really important question. Um, uh, the, the truth is for me, I, I try to spend very little time um, actually memorizing anything. And uh, if I am like drilling and like really trying to memorize because like, okay, I play the King's Indian, I play the Sicilian. Sometimes there's really sharp lines where if you don't know it move by move, you know, you could just lose out of the opening, even like to a lower rate of player that's, that's booked up. 
Um, when I'm actually trying to memorize something, what I'll do is I'll set up a physical chessboard and I'll have like a computer with chess space next to me with like my lines and stuff. And then I'll make the moves on the board and then I'll look at the board and, and try to like use my own uh, chess brain. Cause you've played tournaments. You've probably had the feeling where, um, you know, you show up to the board, you play your prepared line, and then you're looking at it on a real board for the first time. And suddenly you're seeing like all these like different options that your opponent could play that look like natural moves, but you just haven't looked at them. And you're like, yeah, what am I going to do if they play this? What am I going to do if they play this? So I try to get that out of the way while I'm actually like practicing. And then I try to move the pieces with my own hand just to kind of get like some muscle memory uh, going. So I do work with Chessable. Uh, I've done like some regular books on there. And uh, I've, uh, or I'm currently studying the uh, the Gawain Jones like King's Indian repertoire, which which I think is very thorough. But it's like you know a thousand lines. It's I think very impractical to try to memorize everything, especially because nowadays uh, you know people have this kind of hit and run strategy with the opening. Like they play one line that's kind of tricky. Next game against you, they're going to play a new line. Very few people are going for these like super deep theoretical lines. I, I think the reason for that is like because when you study them from White's point of view. You see that black has a number of good options and black is typically equalizing everywhere. So from white's point of view, if you want to like get an edge out of the opening, you really have to like surprise your opponent, play something new or kind of unusual. And so you're not going down these like really deep theoretical lines that are more or less uh, predictable. So for me, the way I would suggest like working on openings, um, I, I think buying some kind of course is a good uh, starting point, right? Because there's, there's no sense in like trying to like reinvent the wheel, like going into chess space yourself and looking at like a million different positions. Like you're not really sure what you're playing for because uh, chess theory has been around for a long time. And there are many lines that have been around for a while, but are now like considered no, uh, not that good or um, used to be considered uh, kind of sketchy, but are now kind of coming back in, into the, the mainstream it's a lot easier when, when someone like Geary, you know, just kind of sits you down and tells you like, okay, these are the critical lines, but it's probably not necessary to have that all memorized. I think that's just a good starting point just to kind of understand what kind of positions you want. And a lot of times you know, the course might not work for you, right? Like the Geary course I, I, I've heard is like very positional and it's like, you're having to like defend. It's not exactly what people sign up for when they want to play the dragon. They want to play like attacking chess, even if it's like a little bit, uh, risky. So there's a little bit of a disconnect there, right? Because you're not playing this opening the 2700 level, you're playing it against like your fellow club players. And so you do want to find kind of like typical thematic ideas. So I would suggest using the course as a starting point, but then looking at the lines yourself and making sure that this is something you actually want to play. And then when it comes to like the actual memorization, I would say just start with like very uh, very bare bones, like the quick starter or like the short and sweet, like whatever it is. Um, just like, you know, take the lines that are being played against you in online blitz, for example, most frequently, like focus on those and make sure you really like understand what you're doing there. Uh, basically what I'm trying to say, I think it's better to go wide rather than deep. So you kind of want to understand a little bit about every variation that might be thrown at you versus knowing some lines like 20, 25 moves deep. I think it's better to study like 10, 12 moves in, in uh, lots of different directions. Yeah, I, I actually, I, I kind of had that same punch because, you know, when, for example, I'm, I hover around like 1950-ish mm -hmm. online, like chess.com, rapid. And, um, you know, I think that makes me like a pretty, you know, I know how to move the horsey, as I say in the podcast. 
Um, but you know, I, I was learning the exchange Ray Lopez and, uh, and it was a chessable course and it's a really good course, but some of these lines are like 25 moves deep, like a theoretical struggle. Like I'm never going to see that in a game. So, so basically like you think with like, like these lifetime repertoires, these like more massive opening courses, better to just kind of go through it. Like you would go through a book just to get a feel for positions without trying to, you know, grind down these, 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 like all these lines. Yeah. I think, um, the course, in my opinion, should be used kind of like a reference point. Like if someone plays something against you and you don't know what to do against it, then, okay, you go check the course and you see what the recommended line is. But to me, yeah, it feels very impractical to after try the and, game, right? Yeah, after the game. <laughs> uh, <laughs> apparently, I think it's very, very impractical. Yeah. To try to, to try to memorize everything. Um, I would focus more on like studying model games and just trying to get a sense of like, how the positions are supposed to be played. I mean, exchange Rui Lopez is a great example because that's an opening where a lot of times, you know, it's just equal for many moves, but then white kind of wins in the end because they have like the kingside majority or they traded off the right pieces. I think those things are much more important to understand versus like what exactly to do, whether they go like king c8 or knight e7 or g6 in some position, right? Uh, I think much more important to understand like what you're playing for. And there are some openings like that where it's really just about the structure, the long-term plans, and really not about like the move-by-move -move, um, combat in the opening. Now, like, you know, you mentioned chess base before, and this is actually a question I've been thinking about for a while, and I've debated with my coach about like whether or not to get chess base. Um, for kind of because you know I like cooking up openings in the opening lab and you know the Lee Chess database while I love Lee Chess for being open source and all is just I don't think there are enough games and the chess.com database is even less so you know at, at what level should a player in your opinion you know as a esteemed coach like at what point do you think a, like a player should start considering like yeah maybe I should get chess base yeah that's an interesting question so I think um, I would say a lot of it just like depends on the, the player. If like working on openings and keeping like a database of your games and, and other openings is something that you're interested in, then I think there's honestly no limit where, where chess base uh, can be useful. For kids, generally, I, I don't even bring it up unless they're like 1800, let's say over the board rating like FIDE or USCF. And they seem really interested in like progressing further and like working on, on their chess uh, like the kids that I coached at the uh, world youth tournaments uh, a few years ago, I, I went a couple of times. Um, They're all like, like very, very talented and very ambitious. Most of them have chess base and they, they actually enjoy using it. But most kids out there, I think wouldn't like it. And it's kind of like a boring program. There's not a lot of like bells and whistles and it glitches a lot. Like it's not exactly a pleasant experience to work with chess base. It's just very, very useful, which is why I think everyone kind of puts up with it. Um, when it comes to like adult players who are, I think, going to have, are going to be more motivated and they like the idea of having like a software, I don't know if there really is like a rating uh, limit on, on that. Like I know several adults who are like maybe 12, 1400 online and they really like chess base. It's certainly not necessary for them, but for me, the main uh, benefit of it is just being able, being able to like save your analysis. And on, on this note, I mean, I think Lee Chess Studies are just like the best tool on the internet because you can just save all your games in there, save your analysis in there. Like you mentioned, like the opening database is, is not as great. The engine is not as strong. But if someone just wants like to get started and they want something free, like Lee Chess Studies are just like amazing product. Um, but yeah, if you want like 
to see like all the latest games and uh, you want to be able to like run the engine on your own computer, run it locally, which is going to be stronger. And okay, like Chessbase, I think is, is the best product um, that I've used. And uh, yeah, I think it's all about just what, what you do with it. But for me, saving my games, like I have a database of all my tournament games, which is like you know, 1100 games. Um, that's very useful for me. I like having a database for all my openings, all my analysis. Also as a coach, like I keep a lot of um, databases with just like either puzzles or like instructive games, instructive positions that I use for, for teaching because it's impossible to memorize everything. So it's really nice to just have like a collection of your, your training material. Um, so yeah, to answer your question, I think there's, there's no real limit, but generally I would say like, you have to be really interested in what the product uh, is offering. I think a lot of people, they end up getting chess space just because they hear like all the professionals use it and that it's very popular, but they don't really understand like why they themselves actually want, uh, to use it. But if it's something that like, you're really excited about and you want, like, let's say an improved version of Leech studies then I think it's, yeah, definitely worth getting. That's uh, it's very good to know. Cause I, you know, every day I'm on the chess based website and I was like, should I get it? I'm like, my, my cursor hovers over the, <laughs> you know, the starter edition or the, the, you know, the $120. And then I'm just like, ah, I don't have enough money. Uh, but, um, but yeah, that's, uh, I've, I've been on the fence. So, you know, every argument I hear is, uh, making me go towards it. Cause you know, it's fun. It's fun to like cook up like weird lines sometimes and like, you know, try it out on the the online wild west of, uh, you know, blitz and whatnot. Yeah. Let me, let me just say, don't think it's necessary to buy one of their databases, like the mega database. And um, because if you just buy the program itself, it comes with the chess space online database. And, and that one in many ways, it's actually better than the databases they sell because it's updated very frequently. So you can get games that were played like last week and it'll be, it'll show up there in the online database. Whereas if you buy like a, a mega database or a big database, that's something that you have to update on your own. You have to like add games to it. And I believe there's like free databases out there that you can use. Like I think Kaisa base is one of them. I haven't used it myself, so I can't say too much about it, but I think there are lots of databases out there that you can get for free. Um, Twic, the Weekend Chess is another one where um, Mark Crowther just publishes all of the latest games from the week from all the top events. And it's a little bit of work yourself. You have to download all the individual databases, but if you do a little bit of work and compile them, then you can basically get all the, the most recent games. So if you're on somewhat of a budget, I would recommend just getting the program itself. And then you can, you can use a number of databases with it. Huh. Yeah, it's very good to know. Well, you know, while we're talking about coaching, I think we should, uh, we should move on to talk a little bit about the, uh, the chess dojo because, uh, you know, I actually I haven't been watching Chess Dojo for that long. Um, I was kind of acquainted to you guys on Twitter back in March, uh, but I've, I've popped in for some of the streams. I was I was briefly in the uh, in the award ceremony, you know, nice. um, and, and that was a lot of fun to watch. Um, so first of all, I I just will remind you guys um, if you guys are looking for something a bit different from you know the Agadmator uh, and the Levy Rosman kind of content, um, Chess Dojo is incredible. I like there really is nothing like it um very very instructive lessons and like fun videos like i love the gauntlet series i just think it's like a ton of fun to just watch people you know go through all these different games um and uh yeah i guess i i'm, I'm really curious because i don't really know much about the the dojo lore but like i guess we'll just start like from you know we can just get it on the record here like how how did you even uh start the dojo or were you a founding member like how did this 
whole thing happen? Yeah, basically. Okay. So it started, I think around November or December of uh, 2019. And at that point I had been streaming on my own channel um, for a little while and I had um, my own Patreon page and I had my own discord server that basically no one was in. It was like maybe like 30 people in the discord server. And sometimes I would post like my YouTube videos on there, but basically it was very, very small. And um, I think I, I created Dojo to kind of solve like multiple problems. Uh, number one, I felt like the discord was actually being heavily underused. I, I think it's like a brilliant app. Um, and the reason for this is like, I think I was on um, the chess subreddit a while. And for me, the, the chess subreddit had a number of issues. It's like, you know, always the same questions being posted on there. And it's just like an endless stream of just like, just the same kind of posts. Like, hey, I'm 1600, I'm looking for a training partner. Or like, hey, I'm 1200, what books should I read? Like, hey, I have this position in the game. Like, what should I play here? There's like very little, like, organization to it. Like I really love Reddit, but it's, um, it just didn't seem like a great way, uh, to do things. I'm guilty then, of the Reddit uh, thing, by the way, I just want to say that that was, that was <laughs> a lot of those posts. Yeah. So sorry. <laughs> no, I mean, that's just, that's just how it is. And it's like every day, it's just, you know, a different set of people posting the same questions and then getting the same answers, um, from the, the crowd. And in terms of the crowd, like nothing against Reddit folks, it's just like, you know, you would get, an answer from someone who's like, you know, pretty low rated online. That's like really detailed and thoughtful answer. Uh, but you're, you're like wondering, like, you know, is it actually good advice? And a lot of times it, you know, wouldn't be people just give advice that got them to the level that they're at. Right. So maybe someone studied the Danish gambit and got them to 1500. And then they're going around telling everybody like, Oh, you should study Danish gambit. It'll get you to 1500, which may or may not, not be true. Um, but then that player is like stuck at 1500 for, for a while. Right. So it's like not necessarily the best advice. Uh, and then you see good advice from players that are, let's say masters or like coaches, it gets downvoted maybe because it's like a bit of like harsh truth. So it's like, it felt a little bit odd to me. Uh, and then on the other side of it, I felt like there are all these discord servers out there, but most discord servers are just an extension of the Twitch stream. Just like if you like the streamer, then you just join their discord server right. Maybe you like hang out with like other fans for a bit, but there is not like a ton of utility in the server itself. It's just a way for fans to connect. So I felt like there could be a Discord server that uh, is not attached to, to any stream. So this was before Dojo had its own uh, Twitch channel. I felt like the Discord could just be useful in its own right, where players could connect, they could uh, find training partners, they could discuss books. And the nice thing is that everything is just organized in channels. If you want to discuss books, discuss games, discuss openings, just go to the channel. You can see the conversation before you and uh, you can search. So it's like, I think a lot more useful than um, Reddit where you just like, it's impossible to find something uh, in, in many cases. So yeah, I wanted to basically create a server that was open to everyone um, that wasn't attached to a specific uh, Twitch stream. And um, I don't remember how I came up with the name uh, Chess Dojo. I remember Googling it to see if it was like being used already. Mm -hmm. And it was used on some channels, but they, they all seemed defunct. So I thought, I thought it'd be okay. Um, and 
yeah, I basically just wanted a place for people to come together. And, and now a uh, nice thing about Discord is like you have roles. So you can see if someone is like a title player, you can see if they're a 1400 or 1800. Um, you can see if they're interested in Blitz or, or, or classical or if they're like a tournament player. Um, and so I feel like it's just like a much better form or forum for, for players to like communicate and, and uh, again, find training partners and, and discuss stuff. So I created that, I think it was, yeah, November, December, 2019. Um, and uh, I made a post on Reddit because how else uh, would people <laughs> find out about it? Um, and then I think a lot of people joined. Um, I also posted on it uh, about it on Twitter. I tagged like a bunch of chess punks because I thought it'd be right up their alley. Um, and uh, cause on Twitter, it's another place where like people are often just having the same conversations, having the same discussions, like how to get better at chess, what are the best books, but it's all very, very disorganized and people are often having to like repeat themselves. So I thought it'd be cool to have like one place where people could come that are interested in self-improvement and hang out. Um, so then a couple months in, I, I start, uh, streaming under the name chess dojo live on Twitch. Um, because I started doing these like group classes. I thought it'd be fun. There was like a lot of members in the dojo. Um, someone jokingly called me a sensei and I really liked that. So I was like, okay, I'm the sensei here. That's that's fine. <laughs> and uh, and then I started doing like these kind of like free group trainings where we had like three different groups. We had like a, a grasshopper group, a squire group that was kind of intermediate and then a warrior group for, for more advanced players. Um, and I started streaming those classes and then that gained a little bit of traction. So then fast forwarding to February, uh, 2020, uh, international master, David Pruis reaches out to me. Uh, and I've known David for, for many years, we go way back, um, when he used to work for chess.com, he was the person that originally got me into like doing commentary and chess work. Um, so that was years ago. We've been friends for a while. We've played many games, like stayed at each other's houses and, and all that stuff. Um, he messaged me asking if I'd be interested in, in teaming up with him. Um, and at this point, I'd already been considering inviting people to join Chess Dojo as, as fellow senseis, because I never wanted it to be just kind of like my project. I wanted like other people to come in and like uh, get involved and, and engage. And he basically came to the same conclusion that I did, where like if you want nowadays, if you want to have like a successful Twitch stream, it's really hard to do it on your own. There's so much competition um, and it's probably easier if you team up with others and create like kind of like a, a group effort. And so I it was immediately on board because I've been kind of thinking the same thing. And then we wanted like a third or possibly fourth person. Uh, and then we uh, thought of Jesse. Uh, we've also known Jesse for many years. David and Jesse are, are good friends. Grandmaster Jesse Cry. And uh, he was on my radar because he was also streaming. And he was doing his show on Twitch, uh, The Road Back to 2500, where it was unlike anything else on Twitch at, at the time, where every week he would, he would just talk about his journey and his process to trying to get his rating above 2500 again for the second time, because uh, he's, he's been up there before. And he would just discuss like what he's been working on lately, what books he's been reading, um, what games he's been studying. You know, he would analyze a lot of his like previous tournament games is very kind of like slow, methodical, you know, not like your typical Twitch stream, right? Which is just like blitz and bullet and like super fast. Um, his was just like a very slow, like philosophical discussion about chess improvement. And at that point he had done like 12, 15 episodes. And, and to me, it just seemed like perfect for 
kind of what Chess Dojo represents, which is just like the hard struggle of self-improvement. Uh, so we reached out to see if he'd be interested in it as well. He, he was, and uh, we got him to eventually start doing his show on Dojo's channel. Um, and actually the, the idea from their end wasn't to join Chess Dojo. I'm not even sure if they, they knew about it, but I kind of said like, look guys, I already made this channel. It already has some traction. And it makes a lot of sense. Like, it sounds like this is what we're doing. Why not just use this like existing uh, thing? And they thought about it, they accepted. So they became fellow senseis as well. And so that was March, 2020. We were originally planning on just kind of starting in June, 2020, because David was still teaching in, uh, in, a, in a school, a real, uh, real life school. Um, but then obviously the pandemic hit. And so everyone was sent home we decided like, well, we're all at home. Why not just like start right now? So we ended up starting as the pandemic uh, started to get more and more um, serious. And uh, okay, since then, I guess the rest is, uh, you know, basically history. We started doing lots of different shows um, and uh, the Discord has started expanding. Um, we've recently added a fourth member, uh, DM Hokey, who's not a sensei, but he uh, has been very instrumental in just helping us with like graphics and editing videos and uh, overlays and basically all the stuff that's like very hard for chess players to do. We needed a specialist for it, but he's now like a fully fledged uh, dojo member himself. He's like the warden of the dojo. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Very important. <laughs> very instrumental. So like, well, you, the, the something that I really like loved about your YouTube channel is the book reviews, because there's really also like, you know, I think like um, the the it's honestly fascinating to me how quickly like the chess content world has evolved in like you know the four or so years that I've been playing chess. You know, like when I started, it was like Agadmator and like uh, or Agadmator, I think is how it's pronounced. I'm sorry, um, uh, Antonio, you're the best. Um, <laughs> but uh, it was like him. It was like St. Louis Chess Club events uh, and like that commentary team. And like, that was about it. And, and like chess network can't forget Jerry, the, the, the legend. Um, but now like you have, like, obviously you have like the Hikaru, like just the stream stuff uploaded on YouTube, which is very popular. Like I always watch that stuff and, you know, Eric Rosen and, and all these, you know, all these amazing different group of characters. But a lot of it is like you said, it's like, you know, the blitz and bullet stuff. Um, and so like, I've, I've watched a couple of your videos about book reviews and like, um, I actually like just today, I, I just watched your video like last night about, I think it was a book review about, I think the iceberg or the, it was something about with this, something on the, the covers, like an iceberg. I don't actually remember. Oh, under the surface. Yes, yeah. Under the surface. Exactly. And, 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 you know, um, it's by Jan Marcos, I think. Right. And, um, and you know, you, you gave such a glowing review that like, I have it in my Amazon cart right now. <laughs> and I'm just like saying, should I buy another chess book? Mm -hmm. You know, like I have a small library already. Like, should I buy another that I'm not going to read? Um, but it's it's cool. Like, I think that like there's there's like a lot of um, like I guess it's it's like what's the word I want to use? It's co like complementary content to like what you might already be consuming. So like you know when you were like kind of thinking about like what to do in the dojo, so to speak, this metaphorical dojo or this like you know it's uh like virtual dojo like um i guess like what i'm trying to ask is like how how are you like um deciding what kind of content to make was it just like with the idea of like we just need to like focus on the education and like different groups or is it just like oh you know there's kind of holes and gaps and 
what's available on YouTube and you guys want to kind of fill that space? Right. Um, yeah, I think originally our focus was on um, over the board tournament players because we are, we all come from like the over the board scene and we're not like super adept with the the online scene. Like none of us are particularly great like blitzers and, um, you know, like before the pandemic, uh, maybe people don't, don't realize if they join like during the pandemic, like there used to be over the board tournaments all the time and online events were kind of like let's say somewhat uh secondary you know like during like the over the board world championship like nothing else is happening online no one no one cares about any online events or any during any kind of like big over the board event like Singfield cup or white the online events kind of take a back seat and then when there wasn't like a big over the board tournament that's when people get excited about like um pro chess league or like speech chess championships a kind of like big online event but then during the pandemic, obviously online chess has kind of like taken over, definitely the more popular one now. And um, we also have, you know, we have a ton of dedicated members um, that have never played over the board. They purely play online and they just prefer to play online. So we realized like we can't just cater to over the board tournament players because there's lots of people playing online that, um, you know, still care about chess as much as the over the board tournament players, even though that's kind of like the classic way uh, of playing chess. So we essentially shifted to just trying to, um, let's say, engage with anyone that's just interested in, in self-improvement and actually getting better at chess. Like we all kind of strongly believe like playing blitz is, is fun and it can be a, a good tool for certain elements of chess, but like ultimately if you want to get better at chess, you have to like learn how to do the deep thinking, play classical chess, really like think about the game in, in, a, in a deeper sense. It's not just about like reaction speed and like seeing a lot of tactics it's about understanding the game in, in a deeper way. So nowadays, I think our focus is definitely just like on, on self-improvement. Um, I also really like that the community itself has just like become alive right like we have like many members like you said um and we often let people uh, stream for our channel if they want to do like uh something related to self-improvement or like uh, teach a class or something like that um and that was always kind of my hope for the dojo is that i wouldn't just be doing all the teaching uh and i imagine in regular dojos it's not just the very top that are doing the classes also it's like the masters are teaching classes and there's kind of like different different rungs to it. Um, so there could be someone that's like really dedicated to like helping beginners, someone really dedicated to helping intermediate players. And so I really like that kind of community aspect where players that are lower rated than me are still good enough to help players lower uh, than them. As long as they're giving good advice. Sometimes I have to step in when people are giving bad advice and then discord and <laughs> set the record straight. But um, yeah, for the most part, it's, it's really just been all about, um, self-improvement and just how well how difficult that journey is so here's uh here's more of a philosophical question to uh to take a sidestep um i've been very stressed lately like just because of work and uh, i'm moving to denmark in a couple of days so and you know ch chess has been chess is a stressful game you know especially like when you're studying you know you're trying to memorize your line in a game you know it's like it, it's hard it's it's uh so and i feel like you know do you think that sometimes people like are so tunneled on improvement that they don't just remember that, you know, that it is a game after all that you got to enjoy too? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. I see a lot of people that are like, 
you know, they're afraid to play rated games online because they just have some anxiety about like losing rating points. Um, or, or clearly there's something going on psychologically because they, they get really hard on themselves when they lose a game, which, I mean, I understand it, but it, like, I think logically it, it really doesn't, doesn't hold up when you think about how, like, even the world's best players, like the absolute, like geniuses of our game, like they all make mistakes constantly. Like even in their uh, classical games, they'll make tons of mistakes and they'll mess up all the time and they'll miss things that they, you know, quote, should never miss. Um, especially in blitz games, they mess up. And then you, you have players that are like 12, 1400 making what I would say are like typical mistakes at that level, like really beating themselves up over it because they, they have this expectation that they should be perfect um, or that they shouldn't be making these mistakes. And I get it. Like I get all those same feelings as well. Uh, like when I play a game, if I mess up or, you know, I, I don't see a combination or something or like I miss a move, I, I get a little mad at myself as well. Like, oh, I should have seen that. But like, ultimately it's, it's all part of the process. And yeah, if you don't enjoy the game, like what, what is the point of it all? Right. It's like, um, well, I, I think the point becomes, it's more of a, more of an ego thing, right? It's like, you spend a lot of time invested and like you, you really want to, I guess, be looked at as, as a good player. I hear that a lot in the, in the dojo, like, um, someone will say they don't really have a specific rating goal in mind. They just want to get good. They just want to be a good chess player. Whatever that means, they don't really understand. They just want to be yeah. seen as someone that's good. That's so funny um, because like even yeah. for me, like I remember when I started, like like at first it was like, yeah, I want to be like, you know, 1200 because then I can beat the average player. And then it's like, oh, now I want to be like 1500 because, you know, then I, you know, then I'm like, you know, like 95th percentile on like the websites or whatever. And then it's like, no, now I want to be 1800 because like go by threes. And now I'm like, oh, now I got to be like 2200 because then I can like beat like master players. So like it, your, your whole perception of what's good changes like over time too, because you do improve. Like if you play a lot of chess, you are going to improve like eventually. Right. Like, yeah. so yeah. No, exactly. Right. And then these, these numbers themselves are, you know, very arbitrary um like i remember you know i wrote an article about this um many years ago where i uh you know i'd been stuck at uh 2200 for some time like uscf rating and then i had a series of good tournaments and then my new high was like 2367 <laughs> and so and uh and so i wrote this article about just like you know what i did to kind of like improve and, and get better and then um, Jen Shahadi, who is the editor for uh, U.S. Chess Online or Chess Life Online is what it was called. Um, she she kind of made the, the point that I was trying to express. And then she came up with the title uh, Breaking 2366. Like this was like some big milestone. <laughs> and she made this very good point. Like it's it's not actually harder to go from, you know, 2398 to 2399 it's not harder to do that than to get from like 2399 to 2400 just we we put all this like psychological importance on these like round numbers it's like purely like an identification thing it's like you right. just want to have this identity of an 1800 player 2100 1500 1600 whatever that means to you the numbers themselves don't don't mean anything like you could you can get to 3000 like grinding puzzles Right, but it doesn't actually mean anything for uh, your your overall chest strength, um, and so 
it yeah i really feel like people try to uh they put too much of a focus on it and uh, they think about let's say being better more than they like you know do the work to improve they kind of and i'm saying this from experience like i i, I would do all the same things that you kind of just like fantasize about being better um, and what that would be like and i think that's important to at least give yourself a vision but people do it too much right then they don't actually like do the work of like reading and like solving puzzles and i think that's where true improvement comes from like you were mentioning you have a lot of books that you kind of lose motivation to read i think the issue is like you know you need to find a book that you just enjoy reading and then it won't won't right. feel like work it's like you you just can't can't wait to read it yeah um, and you know what i actually have I, I got this book like uh, the Anand Files about his World Championship run, yeah. and it's enthralling because it's like it's like prose and like you learn you like, uh, like about like just like the story of like like you know the the camp meetings like with you know, like Peter Heine and Nielsen and like Surya Ganguly and uh, Rustam Kazimdjanov and like Radoslav Wojtaszek. I just finished the first match, which was against Kramnik. And you get all these stories about like, for example, like Surya Ganguly, I think had chicken pox at one point that I, I, all these things I didn't know. And then meanwhile, you also get like really, really like very, very good annotations of all the games. So I'm going through these games and I'm like, I'm learning how to play against D4, like, like Kramnik and like there's like a repertoire, like for the fourth Queen C2 Nimzo Indian and like some Queen's Indian, uh, sorry, Queen's Gambit acceptance lines that I'd never seen. And I play that opening. So like, yeah, like you said, like finding those right books, like I literally, whenever I find time to open that book, I just can't put it down. Like I'll be up until 3am, 4am. And it's not like a book about like openings or improving in that sense. It's just like, it's a, it's just a chess book, but like, and I, it's just something I wanted to say too, like reading that book, I definitely feel like I've improved. Like, I know I've improved, like the way I understand the game has changed. And yet that doesn't necessarily translate to, uh, a, you know, a chess.com, like a hundred point increase when you read a book, because that's not how it works. Like, I, that's really the hardest and most frustrating and beautiful thing about chess is like, as you get better, the amount of work you need to put in to increase that number is exponentially higher. Like, and that's like what makes it like such a fun game and such a deep game to really enjoy and but it can also be frustrating if you're like, if all you're focusing on is the number and not on the game, you know, like. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like, um, no, you said it is exactly right. It gets harder as you go up to make progress. And that definitely uh, makes things a lot more more difficult for, for players. Um, but um, yeah, and I see it all the time when, you know, someone says they've been working hard and then it's like, they say they're not improving, but what they're really saying is that like their blitz rating hasn't gone up because I I've, I've been there. It's like you studied really hard for like a couple of days or like a couple of weeks. And then you're like, you feel really motivated, like go play some blitz and crush some people, but it just hasn't kicked in yet. I feel like it takes several months of work before it, it can possibly kick in. Um, for me, the, the periods when I like made the most improvement was like, I was working really hard for like two, three months, uh, maybe like doing calculation work every day for like four to six weeks, like really long, like an hour, hour and a half. My brain hurts at the end of it. And then like three months of that or like going through a, a collection of games and like playing through the games and really studying them and 
um, you know, inputting some of the games into the computer, if I didn't understand like a certain line or annotation, I would then go analyze it with the engine to see like, okay, why wasn't this move played or why was this move not good? And then try to see if I can get an answer. So like three months of that, and then only three months after this, like three month, you know, grind, would I actually feel subjectively like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm stronger now. I can calculate better. Or, like I see more things. I see more ideas. It really takes a lot of time. And yeah, they, we often say in the dojo, like the best book, uh, the best chess book is like the one that you read, right? It's like, I remember um, the, actually the way I got into chess, I think I mentioned this story on um, perpetual chess a while ago, but I don't really remember. But the way I really got into chess was like, I, I'd been playing my whole life and I was somewhere around like 1800 or so as like a 15 year old but I never really got into the history or anything about it uh, until uh, Bobby Fischer passed away. So there, there was news of his passing. So this happened in, I believe it was February, 2008. And I remember when that happened, there was like all of these obituaries. I mean, it was a big deal in, in the chess world. Um, you know, just yesterday, Sveshnikov passed away and, and there was lots of news about that. And so this was, um, this was Fischer, who I would say is like world champion, very mysterious player, you know, he was uh, such a bright star and then stopped playing, you know, it's like countless of books and, and documentaries have been made about him. So when he passed away, that was like huge news in the world. And I started reading up about his story and like all of the obituaries, like on chess base and US chess. Uh, and I had no idea about any of the, uh, the history around him. And I, I started reading up on him. It was just like fascinating stuff the way he like, you know, he grew up in New York. He had like a single parents. He um, would just play every day at the Marshall Chess Club. He like dropped out of high school. Um, he learned how to read Russian so he could read Russian chess books because back then all the best books were only written in Russian, all the best magazines. Uh, and he like just really worked hard to become a, a like phenomenal superstar. Like he was one of the first chess prodigies, but he was also just like grinding chess every single day, like working on chess, like eight hours a day, 10 hours a day. He had like a pocket set you know, that he would bring with him on like buses and trains. And he would just always be doing something, always playing blitz. Um, and then of course he like, he took on all the world's best players, which at the time were mostly from the Soviet Union. He was kind of on his own. And then he like crushes everybody. He, you know, drops out of the candidates matches because he, uh, he thinks they're unfair. He drops out of this big tournament because, uh, you know, the Russians are, are making draws against each other. Um, and then he comes back and like crushes everyone and like wins the world championship. I mean, it's just like this incredible story. Right. And that's actually what really got me interested. Once I started reading about that, I was like, oh man, like there's so much uh, amazing culture here. And then one of the first books I bought and ended up reading was Fisher's My 60 Memorable Games. And to me, I was just like amazed that this book exists because it's like you're taking one of the greatest players of all time and he's annotating 60 of his best games. Like, imagine if I told you, you could have a lesson with one of the world's greatest players and they'll just slowly take you through 60 of their best games. Like how much money would you pay for that opportunity? And these opportunities are out there in the form of game collections. So I feel like anyone that's like struggling with motivation should just realize like, you know, you can get a book of Anand's best games, Kramnik's best games, Fisher's best games, you know, Tall, Botvinnik, almost every world champion has written a book about their games and going through their notes, like Karpov, Kasparov, they've written like some amazing books. So it's almost 
it's almost crazy when people say like, you know, they can't improve or they're not sure what to do. It's like, why not like just read one of these game collections where again, just an incredibly amazingly strong player sits you down and takes you through their games move by move and just says like, here's what I was thinking here. Here's why I played this move. Here's why I played this move. I think people maybe get a little bit too focused on like having to learn specific things, like trying to learn a specific opening or a specific end game, or, you know, they want to learn like the hundred most important positional ideas in chess, which I think is also an important topic, but like, yeah, when it comes to actually like learning how to play the game, I think there's no better education than going through like a game collection of someone really strong. Another book that was very instrumental for me was um, Shirov's book, Fire on Board. Fire on Shirov board. is this incredibly like dynamic tactical player. You know, he learned from Tall himself um, and, and then became kind of like the next Tall in the chess world. And so just like going through his games and seeing like, what he calculated, what he evaluated, what made him go for a certain sacrifice or how he saw certain positions. To me, that was just one of some of the most instructive training I've ever had. Even if it doesn't immediately translate, I think eventually it, it certainly helps. I mean, you're, you're, it's like one-on-one training from like a super GM, right? Like it's just, you have to do the work yourself. And instead of listening to them, you have to read their words. That's the, that's right. the only difference. You know, there's also like, like, I was a like classically trained pianist and um, I also like, I'm a, I do, I'm an astrophysics like researcher. Like I, that's hmm. what I'm going to Denmark for actually. And you know, in all these disciplines and in chess too, there is like this active versus passive improvement. Like there's a, the work you do, like you said, you, you will actually, for me, I almost never see those results. It's only like three months later, like, right. you know, like when I was like studying physics from scratch, cause I was terrible in physics in high school. Like, um, you know, working for a summer and then coming back and saying, wait a minute, Hey, I can actually, you know, I can actually do these formulas now that I didn't understand like three months ago. Like just something, something clicks while you're like AFK while you're playing world of Warcraft all summer. And like, you come mm-hmm. back and it's, and it's the same thing with chess. Like the, 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 the periods that I've had the most improvement is when like, I cut like months after I did some hard study and I was like, kind of was fed up, like, Oh, I'm not seeing results. I'm going to take a two week break and then I'm just going to not care about my rating. And then like, you know, it just goes up um, because I guess something happens. I don't know what the, maybe, maybe there's some neurologist can explain to me this, but for me anyway, like whether it was music or, or chess or anything else, like I'm not, I'm not saying people should just take month breaks or whatever. And that's going to make you become like a 2,700 player overnight. Like that's also not how it works, but like, I definitely think that there's something to that. And also like you mentioning Fisher, it's funny because um, when I started playing chess, my cousins in New Jersey had that exact same book. Mm-hmm. And I was like, kind of like, just, I, I only really knew how to move the pieces and like, you know, play against like my brothers and be like pretty even. And then when I saw this book and like, I, I knew who Bobby Fisher was um, from that movie, Pawn Sacrifice. Um, <laughs> and just reading that first game, you, I like, I never under I never really never had had a taste of like high level chess before. And I wasn't able to like, I was only able to like, it took me like two hours to do the whole algebraic notation and like understand, but I was like, whoa, this is crazy. And then fast forward like a year or 18 months later and like a God Mator's Bobby Fisher series, that for me was like the inspiration for me to get really like to push myself to get really good at chess. I didn't know what that meant. I still don't know what it means, but that was like, you know, seeing like these kinds of amazing games and just like, you know, slaughtering Taimanov and Fisher and like beating Petrosian and like going through this whole and like the, the whole, like um, 
the interzonal 1971 interzonal just like mopping the floor with everyone and anyone like you know as it's just so cool and like you, you like you said like these games are super instructive and um i just got a, a, a end game compilation by capablanca and like mm. i've and even magnus carlson there's also a, like a 60 memorable games it's not by him it's by andrew soltis right. but i actually bought it for the same reason because i was like 60 of magnus carlson's best games why would i ever say no to that like you know yeah. someone on twitter is like oh that's that's meant for beginners it's like but it's 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 a gm annotating 60 of magnus carlson's best games like that you you know you can learn you surely you can learn something from that anybody can learn something from that right and you know like so while you were talking like some other question came up in my head like this is actually a thing i th i struggle with you know I, I don't typically talk about chess improvement on this podcast actually in a in a couple of minutes i'm gonna be doing uh another podcast where i will be talking about it so i'll i'll share that on my twitter and all but um i feel like where i'm at right now it's very hard for me to actually understand like what to improve on and i've never been in this spot before because before i was like okay you know maybe my openings are weak or i need to work on some end game and now i just kind of feel like i'm bad at everything which of course like compared to a lot of other people i'm not bad at all but you know, it's it's very hard for me to like actually like figure out like what to do. So I guess like you know, for a student that you might have who's like in that kind of position, it's just like I don't know what to do. What do you usually recommend? Yeah, um, well, good question. So I would say most players, um, like in your reading range, probably most players in general, uh, tend to have an easier time either with um, like tactics or with positional play there's kind of like two archetypes of of player i'm thinking about one um is like really solid in terms of their positional chess and they know how to like create good squares for their pieces and they know how to like pile up on a weakness but then they kind of struggle tactically they'll miss tactical ideas from the opponent um and they'll miss tactics for for themselves and they can get tricked and the other kind of player i would say is like very tricky they go with tactics they're often seeing like tactical ideas um, but they're kind of missing something on the strategic side where they're not quite sure what to do with their pawns and they don't really have a great grasp of the middle game. So usually when I work with a student, I kind of put them into one of these two categories. You can kind of tell what their strength and their weakness is. And then the advice, of course, is to work on um, your weakness. Uh, so for me, when I was like 18, 1900, I definitely felt very inferior in terms of the tactical side. So I put a lot of work into like just solving tactics and um, working through like a book of combinations and really just trying to like improve my calculation. Um, for someone who feels like more confident on the tactical side and they're like not really sure about the strategy, then I would say like working through a, a game collection is probably a good idea. Someone like uh, a Botvinnik or a Capablanca or a Karpov to really kind of um, really learn more about that side of chess, like the positional side where um, you're really having to like think about what the opponent wants to do and how to improve your own position in like a sensible way. Um, but long story short, I think everyone can really improve everything. <laughs> like, like if you wanted to grind your tactics and calculation, I'm sure you could improve there. Or if you wanted to improve your understanding of chess, I'm sure you could, you could do that. Um, there are lots of great books that I think are more or less going to be useful universally. So one book is um, by Flores Rios, uh, Chess Structures, a Grandmaster Guide, 
where he goes through like a lot of the most common structures and shows like typical ideas from both sides. I think that's a book that's going to be helpful to, to pretty much everyone out there for lower levels. Um, I, I typically recommend, cause you mentioned you're like, uh, like 1900. Um, so for you, I think the chess structures book would be good for lower levels. People that maybe have never read a chess book before. I'm just a big fan of Chernov's books. Um, logical chess move by move and the most instructive games of chess ever played. I think those books just give a very good overview of like typical elements of uh, chess strategy and how to form plans in the middle game and um, how to approach different positions. Like one way I think is a simple way to approach chess position is to just try to understand like, what is your advantage here? Are you better in terms of development? Then you need to play actively. Are you better in terms of the structure? Then you need to like limit your opponent's counterplay and try to focus on attacking their weaknesses. Are you better because you have more material than you need to like trade down? So just like being able to orient yourself in a game in order to understand what to do, I think is like a very important skill. That's something that I think uh, is discussed a lot in those books. Another really good one is uh, Yasser Sarawan's Winning Chess Strategies. Classic. Yeah, I think it has like a lot of just very, very good information. Um, Silman has written some great books. I also like um, John Nunn's Understanding Chess Move by Move. I thought that was a great book where he annotates 30 really high level games. Uh, and he literally annotates every single move played in the game to explain the idea and, and some of the, the variations that were, um, that were discussed uh, or, or, or thought about um, when making the move. Really, I think the most important thing when it comes to chess improvement is just engaging with the material. And what I mean by that is like, let's say you're going through a game, you know, looking at the moves with your own eyes and just number one, trying to understand for yourself, what would you play in a position that you're seeing in front of you? And, uh, and then trying to figure out whether that's a good idea or not. A lot of times, you know, I mean, I, I think some of the best training is when you have a training partner that you can interact with and, and bounce ideas off of. But if you don't have a training partner, then you can use the engine and, and try to use that to understand like whether your move is good. Um, and I would do that many times where I would be playing through a game and then I would see some move that looks obvious to me. And I would just think like, okay, why, why wasn't this play? Like this looks good. Then I would analyze it with the engine and then either it shows some tactic that I missed or, or maybe my idea is okay, but it's not as good as the game continuation. And it's just that process that I think I really got a lot out of just this like feedback process where you have to come up with your own ideas and then you have to understand whether they're good or not. And then most importantly, like why they're good or why they're bad. And that's where I think like real improvement comes from is just getting feedback on your ideas and really trying to um, understand because that's how you improve your, your chess. You know, at whatever level you are, you have certain instincts about the game. You have a certain perception of what kind of moves should be played in whatever kind of positions. And the only way to improve on that is to just uh, try those ideas out, get feedback on them, and then try to kind of like improve your knowledge um, from there. Another very useful technique is what I would describe as putting yourself in the shoes of the, of the grandmaster of the top player. Um, so whenever I go through a game collection, I did this a lot with Fisher, he would mention some line that he calculated. And, you know, even though there are different moves played in the game, he would say like, okay, against this move, I planned bishop g5, knight d5, takes, takes, here, 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 and then white is crushing at the end of like a seven move line. And then what I would do is just try to like, just visualize that, you know, 
variation in my head and just to see what it would feel like to be Fisher actually calculating these moves out on a board. So I would go back to before he, he plays his like brilliant sacrifice. And I would just sit there like, okay, I'm calculating the move knight takes f7. And then on king takes f7, I have to see this, 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 and this. And at a certain point, you know, the visualization uh, gets real fuzzy, right? I can't see as, as far as Fisher, but I just try to like push, you know, as far as I can. And then I'll retrace my steps and calculate the same line and really try to like work on my visualization to the point where I could possibly just see a little bit further than I could when I sat down that day. Mm -hmm. And then just this process over time, I think is what, in my opinion, really drives improvement. Just trying to do a little bit more or trying to correct previous ideas that you've had. I think this is where you actually fundamentally get better at the game. Well, there you go, guys. That's some some very insightful uh, advice from you know one of the eminent uh, chess coaches online. Um, you know, uh, you know you've been doing uh, a lot. You've done writing. You've done commentary. You've done coaching, of course. And I, you, I'm sure you have a ton of students. You know, both in the dojo and out. Um, and so we're gonna put you through the test now with the last segment of the podcast. Uh, this is a thing I debuted yesterday, actually, with the guest was uh, Jennifer Shahadi. So oh, cool. fabulous episode, uh, like one of my favorite episodes I've done. So guys, you know, if you love this episode, make sure to check that one out. Show it some love because it was it was a blast. Um, but in any case, um, we're gonna put you through the same thing that I put uh, Jennifer through. Um, this is a sponsored segment by Aim Chess. This is Aim Chess Instant Insights. <laughs> That was a sound effect that's going to be put in post-production cool. um, right there. Yeah. So um, it's eight questions, you know, uh, eight squared to 64. Uh, so, you know, that's uh, the whole mo motive of the podcast. This is just uh, some questions I came up with that are, you know, I'll change them around as the podcast goes on. But these are the ones I'm starting out with. So, um, you know, just just give an honest answer. You know, take as much time as you need. I'll, I'll edit it. And, um, yeah, I'll just... Uh, Let's get right into it. Are you ready, though? Are you ready yeah, for Aimchess Instant Insights? Absolutely. Um, okay. Question one. Knight or bishop? I'm going to take bishop. Why? Um, I've found <laughs> that it's going to sound really basic. Um, bishops are long range. <laughs> I think Fisher said, I think he was exaggerating a little bit, but he said, you know, even the world's worst bishop is better than the best knight which is not true in terms of the literal meaning but i think what he was getting at is that the position can always open up and once it does the bishops start to dominate that said knights are very tricky no disrespect to knights <laughs> just i've always i've always somehow preferred the bishops it's a very good answer very diplomatic answer um question two Carlson or Nepo? Uh, definitely Magnus. I think he's been the world's best player for over 10 years now. I think he's uh, just a sensational talent. Um, he, I mean, he got so good that it was newsworthy if he didn't win a tournament. Like Magnus can score second or third place in an event and people be like, oh, what's wrong with Magnus? Like that's just how dominant he's he's been. Nepo is also a brilliant player, but I think for me, he's like, he's, he's just a challenger. He's not a clear number one player. Question three, favorite place where you've ever played chess? Um, 
Hmm. I have to think about this one for a sec. Yeah, sure. Uh, in terms of the tournament experience, I would say I really enjoy uh, or enjoy the Reykjavik Open, which I've played a few times um, because it's okay. typical uh, format of one game a day, um, but it's held in downtown Reykjavik, which there's a lot to do there, uh, lots of great restaurants and, and places to walk around to. Um, and then the venue itself is very pretty. Um, and I like the culture there because it's like uh, you'll often see even the top players in um, the little analysis cafe going over their games afterwards, which you don't often see. But the way it works is outside the tournament hall, there's a little cafe there where you can get like a coffee or some snacks or, or even some beer after the game. And there's boards there and people will often be um, uh, analyzing their games and I remember actually, um, I believe it was uh, Shirov was playing the event uh, one year, a few years back. And like, he would literally go around and like spectate other people and their games and like wow. even suggest moves, which I thought was, was so cool. Um, I mean, he's a, he's a very nice guy. I met him because we, we actually played a few years ago at the Isle of Man. And um, so we, we kind of knew each other, but yeah, he'd like, went over to my game, like suggested some moves, went over to like other people's games that I, I presume he, you know, doesn't know them. Um, and so, yeah, that to me was always just like a very cool uh, facet about the tournament. They really like, yeah, they just, they love the game and they really, they really honor it. What's the most memorable tournament you've ever played? Most memorable tournament, man. <laughs> that's, that's a tough one. Um, maybe the event where, I got my final I am norm. At least that's the first one that came to mind. Um, it was here in St. Louis where I'm recording from. And I was playing uh, one of their round robins. And uh, I'd been chasing the final I am norm for, for some time. Um, and I needed to win or I needed to get something like, I think it was, yeah, I think I needed three and a half out of four in the last four games to get the norm. And then I drew the first game of those four. So I needed three out of three. And then I ended up, uh, I ended up getting it. I ended up winning all three games. Um, and at the same tournament, um, Lafong Hua, formerly of the, the chess bras, um, he was there as well. He's a good friend of mine. And he also got uh, an IM norm himself at the same event. And he also had to win his last round game. And we both won games that we like had no business winning. Like I was worse the whole game. And then my opponent just ended up flagging in a messy time scramble. And then he was also worse his whole game. And then his opponent ended up like hanging a queen in a queen and pawn end game, which is very rare. Uh, so we both ended up winning these insane games and we were celebrating um, all night. And then uh, the very next day, so basically midnight of that final round was my, I want to say, I actually can't remember. It was either my 23rd or my 24th birthday. Um, so it was a lot of fun. So we, we celebrated that as well. Yeah. Sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, just a side question. Uh, I didn't know that LaFongo isn't part of chess bras anymore. Well, I don't know if he's not a chess bra, but he has his own channel now. So I uh, feel like now he's just, yeah, his own streamer. Ah, uh, gotcha. Cause yeah. I thought I saw him, um, still like do something with the chess bras like a couple of weeks ago. Although, yeah, I don't know, but that's not important. Um, Anyway, next question. Favorite chess player of all time? Ooh, wow. <laughs> That's 
that's so fun. I feel like I should say Fisher because I talked him up so much, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if he's my favorite. He was definitely very uh, influential for me. Um, I honestly, I man, really hard. I, I found a ton of beauty in uh, Magnus's games. I feel like his games. Um, and at this point, he's had a long career. I feel like he's had some of the most elegant victories uh, I've ever seen. So in terms of pure chess playing, I would say Carlson. What's the favorite game you've ever played? Uh, my favorite game I've ever played is this game I played as Black against uh, FIDE master William Duckworth. Um, I believe I anal analyzed this game on YouTube, so you could probably Google it. Yeah, I, I did a lecture for the St. Louis Chess Club where I go through it. I might make a more recent video about it as well. Um, the reason this is my favorite game is because, uh, like I mentioned earlier, I was studying Shirov's uh, book, Fire on Board. And the reason I was studying that book was because my coach had told me that, you know, I have a weakness in uh, dynamic chess. Actually, I remember it was so funny. I, I, I was like talking to him and I was like, you know, I think I might be less comfortable in open positions. And he was like, yeah, Kosti, I know. <laughs> he like, yeah, this determination a long ago. And then he suggested I read Shiro's book. And so I, I took the opportunity and, and I studied it very carefully and I really, really enjoyed it. And so that book was like a culmination of, or that game I mentioned uh, was the culmination of several months of like working on my dynamic side and working on my calculation. And then it all kind of shown through in that game. Like I sacrificed a piece out of the opening in a very like unconventional way. Um, and there's a ton of tactics and I really had to take a lot of risk in the game. Uh, and then the piece sacrifice turned into like a full rook sacrifice. And uh, it was really, it was not, you know, not a sacrifice where you calculate and then it ends in checkmate. The sacrifice where it just ends in an unclear position, but you believe you have enough because the opponent's king is in the center. Your pieces are more active. You just simply believe in the attack. You believe that it's going to uh, pay off. Uh, and then eventually it did. Like I, I won the game. And then uh, when I analyzed it, like with the computer back then, uh, it was all perfectly sound too. So it was like, I played a you know, nearly perfect game and totally against my style. I had to like play like really, really dynamic side. This was long before I, you know, I was playing the Kings Indian and, and picked up this opening, you know, it was a very kind of strategic, you know, D4 Nimzo player. Um, and so I felt very proud because I felt like I played a game in a style that I'd never, never really uh, felt before. Nowadays though, I checked the game again recently with like Stockfish 13 and it does kind of find a refutation to my sacrifice. But back then, Stockfish didn't. It <laughs> thought everything I did was uh, was fully sound. So I was quite proud of that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, so definitely, well, if there's a Redux uh, review, I'll look for the YouTube video and watch that. It sounds sounds really good. Um, only two more questions. First of all, what's your favorite game that someone else has played? So, I mean, this is a hard question, I know. This one could take a minute, so I can edit out the silence if you need a second. <laughs> That's all good. Um, I'm just going to say the first one that comes to mind um, is this game, uh, Burn Fisher, from the 1963-1964 U.S. Championship. Um, so not to be confused with the game that was titled The Match of the Century, which was also against Byrne, but I believe it was a different Byrne. There were two Byrne brothers. There was Robert Byrne and Donald Byrne. Right. So the, the game of the century was played, I think, 1957. 
that's that's a really nice one. That's all, I'm sure a lot of people's favorite games where Fisher sacrifices his queen, and, and that's a brilliant game. Um, but I always liked his game against the other burn from 1963, where he uh, ends up sacrificing on F2 as black. He plays knight takes F2. White goes king takes F2. The second knight comes in, like knight G4 check. And then he has like a big attack. The reason I really like that game is just it made such an impression on me because um, uh, there's this moment where, you know, his knight is on E3 and it's forking white's queen, the rook, and white's light-scored bishop. And so white gets the queen out of the way. And according to Fisher, um, all the commentators thought he's busted because they thought he's going to take the rook. White will have two minor pieces for his rook. And white will just be positionally crushing because two pieces generally better than the rook in the middle game. Instead, he takes white's light squared bishop. So down a piece, he just trades knight for bishop and then he sacrifices a pawn. He pushes his d pawn forward to open up his own light squared bishop. And then his point is that his attack is just uh, super strong. He just has two bishops aimed at uh, white's king. He has like a queen coming in and rooks coming in and, and like, None of the commentators realize that his attack is going to be so strong. And then there's all these like beautiful tactics. And then the, at the position when Byrne resigns, the commentators apparently didn't know what was the result of the game. They thought Fisher resigned because he's down like two pieces at that point. <laughs> they just didn't see that he's about to like checkmate, checkmate the guy like in a couple moves. Um, but of course, he like calculated the whole thing ahead of time. So I've always, I've always really loved that game. And uh, for the final question, um, longtime listeners uh, know that I used to ask this as like, you know, if you had one opening yet to teach anybody, although I'm changing it now, uh, going to keep it more simple. Just what's your favorite opening? Favorite opening now is the uh, the King's Indian defense. I think it's just like such a rich opening. It's like a lot of fun to play. Uh, it's one of the last openings that I would say like the engine doesn't fully understand, which I think is pretty rare um, because the engine will give white, you know, huge advantage in a lot of like the typical positions, like plus one, plus 1.2. Um, but if you try to prepare with the engine, you really won't go very far. It just, it, it just likes white space advantage, but it doesn't give you like a clear plan of what to do. So it's super fun, super rich opening. Um, and I feel like even if someone prepares for me using the engine, I'll still take my chances. I'm still kind of happy to play it. Why, why do you think people at the highest level, um, we haven't really seen a King's Indian at like the 2750-ish level in a long time. Why do you think that is? I'm just curious. Basically just because it's like, it's just a riskier opening. And generally the top players, when they're playing black, they kind of want to minimize risk and they're happy to make a draw out of the opening. And so the King's Indian is not a great... Um, opening if you're you know just looking for equality we do see it occasionally like for example magnus played it against um fedoseev in the world cup semifinal in the classical game and won like this just like gorgeous game um so you will see it from time to time because i think it does it's not like a losing opening or anything but yeah it's not nearly as solid as like a, a queen's gambit declined or slav or rogozin mm -hmm. or any of these other options so i think it's just more of a more of a practical thing well, yeah, that was Instant Insights sponsored by Aim Chess. Uh, you know, just like uh, we got some Instant Insights on uh, Kostya's, uh, some of his, you know, favorite 
stuff in chess uh, and some of his hot takes and opinions. Um, you can also get instant insights into your own chess when you download Aim Chess and you can figure out what you need to improve on pretty easily. Gives uh, you tactics from your own games to solve and a whole lot of other tools. Uh, so you can use my code David30 at checkout online to get 30% off your first month of Aim Chess. So uh, hope you enjoy Aim Chess. Until then, I want to thank you guys for listening to 64 Chess Podcast once again. Uh, Kostya, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really hope to have you again and maybe other members of the Chess Dojo. I'm a really, really, I'm a big fan. Um, like I said, but like many times during this episode, if you're looking for something that's, you know, maybe not your usual, uh, like, uh, take the juicer kind of thing, you know, on uh, Hikaru's stream. No disrespect to Hikaru's stream, but if you're looking for something, you know, maybe more focused on improving or something that's more focused on, you know, a community chess improvement and stuff like that, definitely check out the Chess Dojo. Um, I will link their Twitch, YouTube, and Twitter in the description of this episode. And uh, until then, you can follow me on Twitter at 64podcast. You can follow Kosti on Twitter at Hello Kosti, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Um, check out his chessable course, which will be coming out, um, like we said in the beginning, it's be on Endgame Studies, which all of us, including myself, can work on. So I will definitely be checking out that course. And uh, I guess I'll see you guys uh, in next time I'll be recording. I'll be in Denmark. So uh, I will uh, say, uh, what did I say? It's uh, farewell. How the hell do you say farewell in Danish? You see, I haven't practiced my Danish in so long. Oh, it's favel. It's favel. There you go. <laughs> how, how convenient. So farewell, everyone. And uh, until next time. Yeah, thanks, David, for, for having me. Uh, I really appreciate it. And uh, I, I wish you the best of luck with this podcast. I feel like there should be lots of chess podcasts out there. So I hope, um, I hope it goes well for you and, and becomes, becomes the next big thing.